Hyeres, a town of Parthia. And Thomas preached the Parthians, Medes, Persians, Hyrcanians, Bactrians, and Margians, and was thrust through in the four members of his body with the pine spears at Palami, the city of India, and was buried there. And James, the son of Alphaeus, when preaching in Jerusalem, was stoned to death by the Jews, and was buried there beside the temple. Jude, who is also called Lagaeus, preached to the people of Edessa and to all Mesopotamia, and fell asleep at Veritas and was buried there. Simon the Zealot, the son of Clopas, who is also called Jude, became bishop of Jerusalem after James the Just, and fell asleep and was buried there at the age of 120 years. And Matthias, who was one of the seven, he was numbered along with the eleven apostles, and preached in Jerusalem, and fell asleep and was buried there. And Paul entered into the apostleship a year after the assumption of Christ. And beginning at Jerusalem, he advanced as far as Illyricum in Italy and Spain, preaching the gospel for five and thirty years. And in the time of Nero, he was beheaded at Rome. If you go on and read the lower part, you also see a lot of names that you recognize and some interesting information as far as you know, what happened to them and what, where they ultimately ended up. So that's uh, that's the age of the apostles, first century. Most of them, of course, died in martyrdoms. Some of them, um, a very few of them, died in old age or maybe in sickness. Um, and after they died, there was a group of people who succeeded them. The first group of people who kind of took over the positions of leadership is a group that we know of as the Apostolic Fathers, and they're called Apostolic because these guys knew. Uh, and apostles, in some cases, maybe even multiple apostles. And in many cases, these fellows, the, the apostolic fathers, were disciples of an apostle. And for that reason, they have a, they're very prominent in, in church's history. They, they're very influential. We've already kind of encountered one a couple weeks ago. We talked about a guy named Papias. Uh, if you remember, Papias had some thoughts about the thousand-year reign that kind of got passed down to the church throughout history. Um, he would be an apostolic father. He's not one of the best known ones, but he is uh, early enough to be considered that. Um, three names really stand out as far as um, you know, being key, the key guys that when, when we talk about the apostolic fathers, these guys are the names that people will usually think of first. So I'll go ahead and give them to you here. The first one is Clement of Rome, very probably the earliest apostolic father of these three. And then after him, we have a guy named Ignatius of Antioch. And then finally, Polycarp of Smyrna. So Clement, Ignatius, and Polycarp, all of them were church leaders. All of them were extremely influential and uh, really left a really um, meaningful legacy. So we're going to move, moving on today, we're going to start by studying kind of the legacy and the stories that these guys uh, left to the church behind them. So today we're going to start with Clement. Clement of Rome. Go ahead, if you have your Bible, let's turn in Philippians, uh, turn on to Philippians chapter 4, verse 3. Clement is super early. He's a first century uh, apostolic father. He, probably lived into the 2nd century, but 
Uh, most of what we hear about him comes to us from the first, and actually, what we're going to look at today is belief that have been written in possibly the late first century. Um, in Philippians, Paul refers to a guy named, Philipp, uh, named Clement. Philippians 4.3, he says, And I urge you also, true companion, help these women who labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also, and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Uh, Eusebius, who we've often talked about a good bit up to now, he identifies the Clement that we're about to talk about, the Apostolic Father, as being this same Clement. Uh, I don't know exactly where Eusebius got that info from, but it seems like uh, knowing what we know about Eusebius, he probably had a source for that. So that's what I'm going with for now. Probably the same guy. The timeline is right. Um, the, the, the book, or the, the letter that we're going to look at today by Clement uh, was probably written, I think, maybe 90s AD. And uh, so Clement is a young man when he's in Philippi, then he could definitely have been the person who wrote that. The Clement is uh, the oldest of these three church fathers, um, apostolic fathers, and um, he's also it's really influential. One of the things that you uh, will find, you'll, you'll see him referred to a lot by the church later on in history. And if you were to say buy an anthology of um, the works of the church fathers, you would probably find a section of uh, an entire pile of writings of literature that are somehow, in some way, either attributed to Clement or are um, related to him in some way. And the reality is, only one of those documents is actually written by Clement. Uh, so, for whatever reason, some other people wrote some stuff which was incorrectly attributed to him, or people tried to write things about him. Like some people wrote some rather um, embellished biographies of him, which aren't really at all accurate. But nonetheless, what that kind of is testimony to is this fact that that Clement actually uh, was very intellectual. Everybody really thought highly of him. Um, for whatever reason, although we don't have a lot left, left from him, his legacy was a lasting one. I think a, there's a good reason why. We'll probably get into that a little bit today. What Clement wrote is uh, it's often referred to as First Clement. You know, there's another piece, another document out there called Second Clement. Uh, Second Clement was not written by him, but it's not a, not an apocryphal document. It's an original document um, written by an early church father. It's usually just called first, or Second Clement, not because it claims to be by Clement, but because when the early church organized these um, uh, these early writings into um, whole manuscripts, what they often did in the early days is they, they organized this letter to follow first Clement. So it kind of takes that uh, takes on that title, although it has actually nothing to do directly with Clement itself. What's, uh, so today we're going to take a look at First Clement. Um, really, I think that First Clement is actually a, it's a real treasure for the church, and I'm glad that it's been left, that the church has preserved it and passed it down to us. It's um, definitely worth a read, uh, but it does some interesting, some really interesting things. He, it's a really long letter. He, um, uh, he's addressing a specific issue that emerged in the Corinthian church during that time. 
Uh, but while he does that, he kind of ranges far and wide over a lot of different biblical subjects and theological subjects. And we get a, a really good impression, a really good idea of what the church's theology, or at least what Clement's theology, um, was at that time. And um, for that reason, it's really helpful. There's some really valuable stuff in there. Of course, it's not scripture, um, but it's, I think, next to scripture, among a lot of other Christian writings, it's very valuable. So we're going to take a look at that today. What... Clement is addressing, when he writes this letter to the Corinthians, is he's addressing what he calls a rebellion or a sedition. There's been another problem in the Corinthian church at that time, and uh, he's writing this letter to basically tackle that issue and exhort the Corinthians to you know, do the right thing and um, make some significant changes. I'm going to go ahead and just open up in that book and actually read to you how he opens up and what he's talking about here. All right, so this is Clement's first letter. Right at the beginning, he kind of goes, after a brief reading, he goes right to the point. He said, he says this, Due to the sudden and repeated misfortunes and calamities that have befallen us, we acknowledge that our attention has been somewhat delayed in turning to the questions disputed among you. In other words, what he's saying is he's been distracted from dealing with this issue for a long time. Um, he's writing from the church in Rome. He's writing representing the church in Rome, and he's writing not to a specific person or person in Corinth, but to the church in Corinthians as a whole, um, addressing them as a group. He's been distracted from some time to write this and really deal with the issue. We assume probably persecution. The church in Rome was probably going through some hard times. He was distracted. Now, finally, he's getting to the issue. And what is that issue? He says, a few rash, well, with that he says, especially the abominable and unholy sedition, alien and foreign to the elect of God, which a few rash and self-willed persons have made blaze up to such a frenzy that your name, venerable and famous and worthy as it is of all men's love, has been much slandered. So there's been another conflict in Corinth. Seems like they have a history of that to some extent. Uh, what it appears has happened, once if you continue to read the letter, is there was a few people in the church in Corinth who had a lot of influential power. Maybe they were charismatic. Um, maybe they were um, uh, socially of a, of a particular rank that people really respected them. But for whatever reason, they had this influential power. It wasn't appointed power. It wasn't vested power. But they had influence in the church. And they used that influence to depose some of the elders, at least two, possibly more elders, got rid of them, removed them from their positions. And this uh, removing of the elders, according to Clement, wasn't justified. It wasn't like they had sinned or that they were preaching heresy or anything. Um, it was purely a matter of, um, uh, I guess, infighting and, and sort of power mongering inside the church. And so Clement writes to uh, basically do a few things. He's going to uh, rebuke the church for that. He's going to rebuke the members who did that, as well as those who are tolerating it. And he's going to exhort them to um, he's going to exhort them to make things right. And I think the way that Clement does that is really uh, exemplary. He, he uses he follows a lot of biblical um, standards and values in, in the way that he approaches that. There are five things that I've noticed when I read the letter um, that he does, which uh, I think are very powerful when uh, in the church we have to address conflict of this sort. 
So let me just give you those five things here right now. First thing that he does is he speaks lovingly. Uh, while he addresses the issue and calls out um, the sin that's going on in Corinth, he, he does it very lovingly. He com continually and repeatedly addresses the Corinthians as brothers and beloved. He takes a tone of, of, um, uh, of, of love and desiring their best. He takes a tone of gentleness. Um, he can be a little harsh at times, uh, as you may have just heard just now some of the words that he said. And yet, um, he still remains overall, I think, very gentle as he resorts them to sin. The second thing that, that Clement does in his letter is he reminds the Corinthians of the past. He says, uh, again, early on in the, chap in the chapter, as he's bringing up this issue, he says there's a, there's a sedition that's going on. He tells them to remember what they've done and where they've been in the past. Uh, except from the very early part of the, of the letter, he says, Who has stayed with you without approving of the virtue and steadfastness of your faith? Who has not admired the sobriety and gentleness of your faith in Christ? Who has not reported your character so magnificent in his hospitality? So Clement is saying to them as he's as he's writing his letters, he's like, remember? Remember how it was? Remember the reputation that you had? Uh, remember the good things of the past? And I think that's really powerful. It's a very powerful uh, thing to do when we're encouraging people to you know, turn and, and to do, do the right thing. The third thing that um, Clement does is he appeals to Scripture. In the long letter that he writes, it's just, uh, it's filled with Old Testament references, very rich theology grounded in Old Testament scripture. And it also has a number of New Testament quotes. Even at that very early date, he's already quoting, uh, there, there are some places where he quotes Hebrews, he quotes the book to Titus, and of course, as you might expect, he quotes Paul's letter to the Corinthians, the first letter to the Corinthians by Paul. Um, and actually uh, alludes to Paul too as well in that, in that letter. So he appeals to scripture, the, the early church fathers, the apostolic fathers, and those who followed after them definitely believed in the authority of the, of the Old Testament scripture and the writings of the apostles uh, there in the New Testament now. The fourth thing that he does is he comes right out, he commands repentance. Um, feuding, disharmony, rebellion, uh, of course, in, in, as churches grow and as churches change and as, ha as they have to make decisions, there's going to be differences in opinion, differences in points of view. And yet sometimes those differences do overflow into what is not just personal differences, but actual sin. And that's definitely and clearly the case here in, in with the Corinthians. And so Clement uh, says, okay, he tells them to turn. Finally, the fifth thing that I think Clement does very well in his letter is he speaks with authority. He's gentle and he's kind, but he speaks with authority. Being a peacemaker doesn't mean being a pushover. Um, he, there's a firmness and there's a confidence um, with which he speaks. Again, let me just read one real quick excerpt to give, him, give an example. Like he knows where his authority comes from, for one thing. Toward the end of the letter, he says... Um, he says this to he's telling people to, to repent. He says, For in this way they will have fruitful and perfect remembrance before God and the saints, and they will find compassion. He also says, 
that they may submit, not to us, but to the will of God. So it's really about the will of God. He's, he's confident in the fact that he's not just representing his own will, but he's rather representing uh, God's will in the church in this. In Matthew 5, 9, Jesus says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. As we've been going through our, our series on the church history, on um, our Bible Cooking Hour, we've been returning again and again to this idea that uh, of the relevance of the church. And beginning with the promise and the hope of the resurrection, we've argued that the church is the only human institution in the world that is eternally relevant. And there are many things that come together that make the church relevant. Um, but we might still ask this question, we might ask ourselves, what makes me relevant individually? What makes you, as an individual believer, relevant? Again, we would probably respond by saying that, the first, to begin with, there's our hope in the resurrection. We have eternal life in Christ. And in addition to that, um, there's a lot of other things as well. I think some of those things are, are worn out, what we see going on here with Clement and the Corinthians. The, uh, when Jesus said that the peacemakers shall be called the sons of God, he's talking about recognition of identity. When people make peace, they recognize you for who you are, that you're either, if you're a peacemaker, you're recognized for the fact that you are either a, uh, that you are a son or daughter of God. Um, and that's a, that's a statement of eternal relevance in that. There's also a way that you can be irrelevant. Turn to 1 Corinthians 3, chapter 3, 16 and 17. First Corinthians chapter three, verses sixteen and seventeen. Eternally, how do you be eternally irrelevant in the church? If you want to be eternally irrelevant in the church, this is the warning that Paul gives in, in this section, one of his first letter to the Corinthians. He says, Let me get on the place real quick. Do you not know, this is chapter 3, 16, 17, do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him. For, you, for the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. In this context, the temple spoken of here is the body of the church. And of course, again, this is an earlier conflict um, that the Corinthians uh, underwent. And Paul is saying, if you destroy the church, you know, God will destroy you. This is the, the way that you show whether you're uh, relevant or irrelevant is how you treat the church, how you build it up or tear it apart, um, how, you, how you edify or how you um, destroy it. And Clement, when he wrote his letter to the Corinthians, I think he knew full well that this conflict that was occurring at that time was really born out of people's desire for uh, a sense of personal relevance. Uh, that's very typical of the way that we think as human beings when um, we often uh, equate positional leadership uh, and the recognition that comes with it um, as something that gives relevance. Um, the people who had ousted the elders in Corinth, um, competed themselves for that position, were obviously seeking personal relevance, and Clement kind of alludes to that. The problem is they were doing it entirely the wrong way. They were looking for the wrong kind of uh, relevance and meaning. And Clement speaks to that. He has some very good wisdom, I think, in, in answering that. Maybe he had another excerpt from the end. He's continuing to 
exhort them and, and kind of rebuke them for what they're doing. Clement has this to say about um, different roles in the church. He says, let us then serve as soldiers, brothers and sisters, with all earnestness. Not all are prefects, not all are tribunes, not all, nor centurions, nor in charge of 50 men or the like, but each carries out in his own rank the commands of the king and of the generals. The great cannot exist without the small, nor the small without the great. There is a certain mixture among all, and herein lies the advantage. The smallest members of our body are necessary and valuable to the whole body. And all work together and are united in a common subjection to preserve the whole body. If you're in the church and you're building the church, regardless of the position that you have, regardless of the um, title or recognition, you are relevant and you are a valuable member in building God's body. On the other hand, Clement it also issues a warning for those who, who clamor for recognition in an evil way. At the end of his letter, he tells them this, and it's a pretty stern warning. He says to them, You therefore who laid the foundation of the sedition, submit to the presbyters. Learn to be submissive, putting aside the boastful and haughty self-confidence of your tongue. For it is better for you to be found small but honorable in the flock of Christ than to be preeminent in reputation but to be cast out from this hope. Clement goes so far as to suggest that if people are doing this in the Church of God, they're tearing apart, they're um, opposing elders, they're opposing elders, uh, they're, they may be cast out, he says, from the hope of God. And that's a really interesting thing, I think, for Clement to say. Little Another note on Clement, if you read his whole letter, he's, uh, he's one of the early fathers that Protestants love. A lot of Protestants out there will tell you, we love this guy. And there's a reason for that. He has one of the strongest statements in the early church to the uh, belief in salvation, in justification being by faith, and apart from any meritorious works of our own. He says that very, very explicitly. And we're going to come back and uh, revisit that later in the future. But yet here, when we get to this part of his letter, and maybe some other parts as well, it seems to be that he's saying... Your salvation, your hope, is partly dependent, in some sense, on what you do. And in order to make that make sense, I think, in, in, in the context of Clement's entire letter, I think what we have to realize is what he is saying is what you do is evidence of whether your faith is really real, really justifies you, uh, justifies you. Love the church, building and edifying the church is evidence that your faith is, is really there. Uh, tearing it down is evidence of the opposite. So Clement urges his people with a very stern warning, or urges the Corinthians, build the church, love the church. That's where relevance is found as an individual. And that's what proves that we really are um, looking forward to a resurrection in Christ. Okay. Any final questions for me before we close out? How long is the, uh, book, the letter? Is that, is that a book you had? Is that the, is this, this book only yeah. has part of it's abridged. Oh, it's abridged, okay. The whole letter, it's How like, long is that book you have in your hands? This isn't, this book is not all. Oh, okay, I got it. is about that section right there. Oh, so it's not long. So it's, yeah. well, as today, as a full book goes, you know, mm -hmm. but as a letter goes, it's very long. Gotcha. Um, uh, and that's an abridged 
uh, edition. And then it's, I mean, it's broken down into chapters and verses. Gotcha. Uh, and uh, it's, I think it's close to 70 uh, chapters. Okay. Um, and then each one of those chapters has verses. So if you were to sit down and read it, you could probably read it in the whole thing about half an hour. Kind of fast okay. about half an hour. Is the read hard? Is it difficult? Pretty easy? I don't think so. Okay. Um, if you have a good translation, it's good. Uh, pretty easy to read. So. Yeah, um, I think Clement is really valuable. I think if we're spending time today reading uh, whatever's out there, stuff about Kuiper, by MacArthur, um, Charles Spurgeon, guys of the past, um, all very valuable stuff. I think we can definitely afford to you know, take time and read some of these uh, older guys. Clement is really good. He's very biblical. Um, and uh, I think it's, when I read him the first time, I was super encouraged because I felt like I was reading a guy who was acquainted with Paul. Like you read it and you go, oh, there's Paul there. Oh, there's, there's Paul again. There's this Pauline flavor to Clement. And that, I think that kind of strengthened my faith there. That this was passed on. 